You're listening to The Main Course, where food is serious business. Listen along for insights, strategies, forecasts, and thought leadership from the front lines of food with your host, Barbara Castiglia. Welcome to The Main Course. I'm Barbara Castiglia of Modern Restaurant Management, and today we're going to be talking about restaurant staffing and an interesting incubator type program um, in the wonderful city of Charlotte, North Carolina. And we'll also talk about dining there. Uh, with me today is Sam Hart, who's the executive chef and owner of Counter. Um, welcome, Sam. Um, you know, before we get to all that we're going to talk about um, in the teaser, um, you know, tell me a little bit about your career um, you know, wh- how you got into restaurants. And I know that you had started out in advertising um, and then, you know, flipped the switch to go to restaurants. Um, so also kind of like, you know, how does that kind of work with what you're doing now? Awesome. Well, first off, so excited to be here. Thank you, Barbara, so much for hosting me. Uh, I am originally from Charlotte, North Carolina, which is definitely the exception, not the rule. When I was born here, we had one-tenth of the population that we have now. So, you know, that kind of leads into what we'll talk about today, just the amount of growth that we've seen here in Charlotte. But yes, my first career was in advertising, specifically on the sales side of things, um, what we call the medium side, when I was with iHeartMedia and then also a couple of billboard companies here in the North Carolina area. And for the past 10 years, ever since I was uh, 21, I've had a absolute love and borderline obsession with cooking. And I was cooking for a couple friends and clients of mine. And I kind of just had this idea, almost like an epiphany right in the middle of my uh, dinner, where I was like, it'd be really cool if a restaurant decided to pair music with food and not just wine. And so thankfully, from day one in my culinary career, I knew exactly what the end goal was. And that was to create the restaurant, which is counter today, which is our tasting menu restaurant focused on telling stories through not just the food, but also the artwork, the music and everything else in between um, to really drive home the message that we're telling with every three month menu. Right. So, you know, you you mentioned a little bit about, you know, the connection with the immersive experience and and connecting with music and all. So is what you did learned in advertising is it still skill a skill set that you're using um today to you know either help in market and promotion or help in in crafting what you do definitely and in very drastically different ways so when we first opened up i knew how important it was to first have a viable concept and something that was legitimate before we just started marketing and advertising it Because the worst thing that you can do is market and advertise yourself and realize that your concept's flawed and have to go back to the drawing board. And it's almost too late because the public perception already has that first meeting with you and that first impression. So for the first year and a half of the restaurant, we didn't spend a single dollar on any marketing or advertising whatsoever. It was solely focused on crafting the concept and making sure that we had something that worked. And once that took place, That's when we really started to aggressively showcase the restaurant, not in your stereotypical, you know, flyers and, you know, TV and radio and uh, print ads and things of that nature, but rather figuring out more grassroots ways of getting 
our restaurant out there. So one thing that we really started to do a lot is a lot of 501c3 work and a lot of work with local charities, doing dinners for them, working with them in certain places to not only get our message out to people who have expendable income, because you know that's one thing that a lot of people who work in 501c3s and donate to 501c3s, they have that. And so also along with that, working with people who care about telling a story that's unique and something that's got a happy ending, you know? So when you work at a 501c3, the whole goal is that you're assisting in helping write a happy story and definitely, hopefully a happy ending to that story as well. Um, you know, so we'll flip, you know, down to something we're going to discuss later because you mentioned it, you know, but so why do you, why do you feel it's so important you know, to work with your community and to to give back. So my mom instilled it into me at a very young age. You know, she said it is pointless to be successful if you're not going to use that to give back. And it's something that really stuck with me for a long time. I very thankfully had mentors and people who cared about my success from you know a very early age. Whether or not I listened to them, you know, that was a different question. Um, but. I was very grateful to have people who cared about me. And so I wanted to definitely showcase that to the community. You know, Charlotte is a city that has grown so much and it's grown in you know great ways and it's grown in some not so great ways. And one of the biggest things about this restaurant, you know, with it being a story-driven restaurant, is highlighting and showcasing the beautiful stories that founded this city too. And unfortunately, Charlotte's kind of a poster child for gentrification and segregation. And so one of the biggest things that we wanted to do with the stories that we tell here is to showcase the incredible people who really have built this city and continue to develop it that aren't always on the front page of the news. And the way that we can do that is to be one-on-one with those community partners. We have two that we work with hand-in-hand. And that's Time Out Youth, which is an LGBTQ plus crisis center. And then also the relatives, which they have two different operations, one of them being their crisis housing, but the other one being the on-ramp center. And that's what we work with the most. And the on-ramp center, they're focused on kids that are in youth that are 14 to 24 years old, getting them not only a place that they can stay, but also making sure that they have um, education, jobs everything that they need to set themselves up for a successful life, because also a lot of them have kids themselves. So you can create generational change, which that's the ultimate way that you can impact a community. It's not just impacting the few people that are around right now, but generational change that can impact, you know, hundreds and thousands over the next few decades. So talking about the community within the restaurant that you've created and connecting with them. Um, Tell me about this incubator concept, kind of where it came from and, um, you know, and why it's so important to you. Yeah. So uh, one thing that I heard one time and it stuck with me forever is that you can't spell culture without cult. And some people have definitely (laughs) said that our restaurant group is kind of culty. Um, and we originally were kind of insulted by that, but now it's turned into a badge of honor. Um, but you know, when you're growing up in the restaurants, you know, you're starting your first couple jobs and all this stuff, 
the thing that you always hunger for the most is the approval and appreciation of your peers and mentorship. And it's something that unfortunately is more rare than common. And so what we want to do here is to create a place that not only is a successful work environment, but it's also a place where each one of our employees feels that they are healthy, they are being, their creativity is being showcased, that it's a place that they can grow and develop and reach their next goal. Because let's face it, every single person that works at Counter, they have goals bigger than just working at this restaurant. And so having the restaurant acknowledge that first and realize that we are a stepping stone for a lot of our cooks and servers and sommeliers here. Once you realize that, then you can really focus on assisting in achieving those. So for example, our chef de cuisine at Counter right now, Chef Young One, his number one goal is to open up his own concept called Koa. And so what we do here at the restaurant is we host his pop-ups, we're assisting him in learning all the elements from not just cookery, but more importantly, the executive management side of things. So we can assist him in opening up his restaurant. And when he leaves, it's not going to be us losing someone. It's going to be Charlotte gaining somebody. And that's, you know, if you keep that in the forefront of your mind and that's the goal that you have, then it makes it so much cooler. And what's now taking place is we have this one to three year rule where we want you to be here for at least a year. So you see the seasonality, you see how the restaurant operates with every month of the year, but we also don't want you to be here past three years because my goal personally, and the goal of every single person that works here is that we can help you achieve everything that you need to do in order to get to the next step of your personal goal that you have in your life. And at that point, yes, we do have to find people, you know, every three years, but also at the same time, we don't run into the same situation, thankfully, um, that a lot of other restaurants run into where they're a constant revolving door and they're trying to find someone every couple months. Here, you know, if someone's been here for three months, we know that they're probably going to be here for at least a year to two years, which we're incredibly thankful for. Um, and it showcases that maybe these people are really learning what they're hoping to learn and developing in the way that they wanted to develop. But it also takes a lot on your part to be very present in their lives and in, in communicating with them, you know, to learn about them um, and what their goals are, and then to keep going, keep them on that path. Correct. Um, it's definitely labor intensive, uh, but it's also why everyone here knows what everyone's goals are. So at that point, it's not just me individually mentoring people one-on-one. -on -one. Young One's become a mentor to a few people. Faith, our pastry chef, has become a mentor. John, our CDC at Biblio, our sister restaurant, has really become a mentor. Our sommeliers are mentors to our servers, and so on and so forth. Because everyone's number one priority of this restaurant is assisting and developing everyone else. And it's a really awesome environment. Because instead of... You know, I've worked in some restaurants where you did everything you could to get to the next level, whether that was throwing someone under the bus or, you know, messing with their stuff or whatever it may be here. The only way that you achieve your goals is by helping other people achieve their goals, which is it's a really beautiful thing to see on a daily basis. For a while, it was this kind of dream world that we were talking about 
And now that it's turned into a reality, it's something that I'm super thankful for every single morning when I get to come in here and work. Talking about labor intensive, um, you have menu, I can't even say a menu, um, because it's constantly changing, you know, what you do. Um, so how how labor intensive, what's that process that comes in crafting a menu for what you do? Um, and, um, you know, and how, how long does it kind of take from when you get that idea of this would work with this to then having something that's kind of, you know, fully and ready for the guest? So people think I'm kidding them when I tell them this, but, um, it is the case. So counter is only going to be open for another nine and a half years. Uh, we'll be closing September 9th, 2032. And the idea behind that is when you know that there is a finish line, you will push that much harder throughout the entire race. And so we've actually already decided what our menus are for the remaining nine and a half years of the restaurant. So <laughs> with that being said, and it's a little ridiculous and over the top, that being said, we haven't figured out each individual element of each individual dish. So the way that it works is I tell the team every menu that we're doing for the following year about August or September of the previous year. So they know every single thing that we're doing this year. It's kind of our program, if you will, of like a theater on Broadway. So at that point, six months out, they find out what the menu is. And they have certain menu items that they're in charge of developing and doing research, so on and so forth. So a good example is we did a menu called Color, where all 10, sorry, nine of the 10 dishes were based upon specific colors that exist naturally in produce and in nature. And we did monochromatic dishes. Well, each one of those dishes was also represent, representative of an emotion that is tied to it. So, for example, I gave our chef de cuisine at that time, Eileen, I gave her the color yellow and happiness. And I said, I want this dish to showcase an ingredient that is yellow and makes me incredibly happy, which is yellow summer squash. So she really went down this rabbit hole, created a beautiful dish that represented not only the color, but also the cooking techniques and flavors that would represent happiness. So there was bright pickled elements. There was a little bit of grilling involved because everyone enjoys, you know, being out at a grill or a cookout on, on a summer day. You know, it's, it really allows them to have their creative mind firing and working with everyone else because you know, if you have a dish and then the next person has a dish, you want to make sure that you're connecting with them to make sure that the progression still stays intact. Right. So it it does take a while. Most of our menus to fully develop take about three to five years. But the final little tweaks and edits and final development takes place in about six to nine months. Right. And how does seasonality and sustainability kind of factor in it is the reason why we open up this restaurant in north carolina so we had funding to open up counter in chicago and we had funding to open it up in singapore of all places but we had no money to open it up in my hometown of charlotte uh, the reason why we did decide to open it up in charlotte is that i personally come from you know a very long line of Carolinians and a lot of them are in the farming and agricultural side of things. 
And then I've spent a lot of time learning and working with farmers here in the Charlotte community and having that understanding of our harvest seasons, which, you know, most people think that there's only four seasons in a year here in Charlotte. We have about 14 to 15 uh, harvest seasons that take place every year. And knowing that you can create menus where, for example, our next menu, which is a fully vegan menu where we only use produce and items from within a three-hour drive of the restaurant, we know that tomatoes are going to be in season those two months. We know that summer squash is going to be in season. We know the cucumbers are going to be in season. So then we can plan the menu to where it utilizes ingredients that are in peak season that taste the best, and it kind of becomes a cheat code. Like, I've never understand why some restaurants will have the exact same dish for an entire year where you can make dishes that take advantage of the absolute best flavor of that ingredient being in peak season right then, right there. And um, that's that's the biggest reason why we've moved here. And sustainability naturally comes from it and also naturally comes from us doing reservation only. So we don't have to guess what people are going to buy. We don't have to guess how many people are coming in. We know. So our waste is incredibly low because of that. And then also we get to keep a lot of things. So for example, if you know we just had a great carrot harvest earlier this year, all of the trim and all of the additional carrots that we had, we turned into carrot vinegar. Um, we're with tomato season. We're going to do a San Marzano-esque uh uh, canning of a lot of those tomatoes that we get extra so we could have tomato sauce later on this year for a different menu. Um, so it allows us, where we're planning this far out, it allows us to be like, okay, we need to have, you know, black peaches that we ferment. You know, we need to have that in February of next year. Let's order an additional case of peaches, you know, this August so we can make sure that we have that for next year and and really crack down on the amount of waste we have. So, you know, what is the experience like um, for someone walking in there and maybe they've heard, you know, some buzz about what you do? Um, you know, what what do you hope that they get from from being in this immersive and sensory experience? So I had someone recently uh, liken a an experience a counter to an etouffee. So an etouffee is a dish where in French it means to smother. And at counter, it is it is very much so at times kind of this smother that takes place where there's so much sensory elements going on. You know, we have not only does the food change and the story change, but the music changes, the artwork changes, the decor that we had, even the plates everything changes every single menu and sometimes it becomes not well sometimes it does become borderline too much but you have so much depth and you realize that the reason why we had this garnish on that dish was because it's a reference to not just a story but to a note in this song and then there's these moments you you see for everyone that kind of genuinely cares about what's going on there's these moments where they have these light bulb moments and it's really cool to see and there are a lot of times that we have people uh get kind of overwhelmed with emotion i'll never forget we had a national food critic in that just started crying 
um, because we were playing a song that was one of her favorite, uh, her father's favorite songs, going with a dish that represented a lot similar to his story. And she just, she started crying and she said, is it normal for people to cry in this restaurant? I said, people actually cry in this restaurant quite a bit. Yeah, we did a dish in honor of Francois Gelot, who was the muse and mother of a few children of Pablo Picasso. And this dish was all about how Pablo Picasso was a terrible person. And you really need to know her more because not only is she an incredible artist who's still alive to this day, she's 102 years old, but also she was able to go over through so much diversity, I'm sorry, so much adversity to create such beautiful artwork and a beautiful story. And that's what we should be talking about as well. And it led into a conversation about domestic violence. And it's not every day that you go to a restaurant and the chef is telling you about the severe issue of domestic violence within, you know, couples in uh, the United States. But, you know, the story to us is the most important thing. So uh, we have tough conversations. We have fun conversations. It's it's just a crazy smother or etouffee of a restaurant. And, and when he told me that, it was just really cool. <laughs> so where are you getting the inspiration for the stories and the songs? Are you, you know, in the car and you hear something on the radio and you go, oh, that remind this, I could, you know, do this and get inspiration there, reading things online, um, you know, where, where are you kind of pulling from? So one thing that uh, I've kind of realized over specifically my cooking career is that you have to be very intentional about finding your source material for creativity. So whenever you buy a brand new car, when you're driving down the highway, you see your car everywhere. And if you think of the same way when it comes to your menu, like if I'm working on, for example, a menu that we're doing uh, next year called Steak and Potatoes, where it's about everything but steak and potatoes. But if I'm constantly looking for inspiration for that menu, I reread. So I have 20 cookbooks that are very inspiring to me that I'll reread the all, all of them from cover to cover with every single menu because I'm looking just for a specific inspiration for that menu. Same thing with when I'm thumbing through Instagram, because let's be real, that's the ultimate inspiration to chefs these days. You know, I'll thumb through Instagram just thinking about that menu, or I'll write notes or read books or listen to music with just that menu in mind. And then it makes it much clearer and much more focused. So our next menu here and now, which as I mentioned, is only using local produce, we're listening to in the restaurant while we prep only music that is recorded and um, and performed by North Carolinian artists. So then that way, okay, we've kind of not necessarily boxed it in, but we've kind of pared down what we're going to listen to. And then from this group of songs, we can really think about, okay, what's going to go well with this dish and with this dish, what tells the story the most and so on and so forth. Right. Well, that's how research is done. Do you, you know, you get it down, you're going in a kind of, you know, going in a circle. And then when you're getting the same things and you kind of know you've reached that point where where you're there. You know, we, I think we've answered this question a lot. Um, but, you know, how 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 do you feel you're pushing the boundaries of what is traditional fine dining? Um, and, you know, what are you you know, what are when a guest comes in, are they um 
you know, are there people who are who are like, uh, I don't know about this experience. Is it too much for them? Um, you know, because of what they're used to or are people uh, kind of just game for it and say, hey, let's go for it. So I think they were pushing the boundary of fine dining more internally than externally. So one thing that we realized very early on when we were creating the concept and, and morphing this restaurant was that we wanted this to be a place that the people who I see 95% of the time are the happiest and most fulfilled. So the whole reason why the name of the restaurant's counter is that we are the counterbalance. We are flipping. We're the antithesis to the normal restaurant process. So especially with fine dining. So usually in fine dining, you know, I absolutely love the book Unreasonable Hospitality, but we have the exact opposite view of that process. So our guests are not our number one priority. Our guest is actually our very last priority. Our number one priority is our employee, then the story that we tell, then the community, so on and so forth. So with that being said, you know, we're pushing the boundary of how you should take care of your people and by proxy, how they take care of you. And the guest, they see that. We get so much feedback from our guests about how everyone that's working has a smile on their face. They're enjoying themselves. They're laughing. They're singing along or dancing to the songs. And then it just automatically has the guests feeding off of it. And in a lot of high-end fine dining restaurants, the majority of the people are cooking scared. They're afraid to mess up. They're afraid that things aren't going to be right. They're afraid that someone's going to get thrown at them or they're going to be yelled at. And when you're cooking scared, it doesn't taste the same and it doesn't feel the same as a guest. And so if you know that the people and you see, because we have no wall that separates the kitchen, you see everything that happens all the time. So if you know that the people who are making your food are enjoying making your food and having a good time, you will instantly reap that as well. And our guests see that. Thankfully, we don't have too many people who are just so out of the blue and don't understand what we're doing. But even when we have guests like that, um, you know, for example, if we have a rude guest or we have someone who doesn't say, you know, the best thing to one of our people, I'm the first person that goes up to him and kind of sets the record straight of how this restaurant goes. <laughs> and, you know, what's funny is that they actually kind of get it pretty quickly because uh, right. they're not used to a chef telling them that they can't do something. Right. Uh, but... Yeah, it and, and I have seen it change, like the the restaurant scene specifically here in Charlotte change in that nature where you have restaurants that are focusing more on how they can create a better environment for their employee rather than solely focus on creating the best environment for their guests. Right. So staffing um, has always been an issue for restaurants and it was kind of really heightened um, because of the pandemic and even now and um, so, you know, you, you've been to other restaurants, you see, you know, you see what they do. What is some things that you see are there challenges in staffing and what can they kind of learn from how you do things? I mean, obviously they're not going to, you know, follow the whole concept, but, um, you know, what, what can they take away from what you do? So when you ask a chef or a sommelier or a cook why they got into the hospitality industry, They'll usually say, 
I love feeding people. I love cooking. I love being creative, you know, and talking in that vein. But then when you ask someone why they left their previous job to come to a new job, it's, well, I wasn't getting paid enough. I didn't get any time off. I was being worked to the bone. I couldn't be creative. You know, that's the reason why they leave. And also you ask people who used to be in the hospitality industry and are now doing something else. The reason why they say that they left was because they felt like they were unappreciated. They felt like they weren't getting paid enough. They felt like they didn't get enough time off and they didn't get benefits. So if you take care of those and you allow your community that works for you to be creative, get paid properly, have time to rest, and you give them benefits that you know they can utilize, what then happens is the reason why your people leave is so that they can go do their next step. And, you know, what I tell people here is that we, thankfully, we don't have an issue with hiring. We don't have an issue with retaining people. Um, we currently have 22 people on staff. We've only had 18 people ever leave counter. So technically, we haven't even hit a 100%. Um, we haven't had the same amount of people leave yet. And usually a restaurant, like I worked in a restaurant that had a uh, 300% turnover rate. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Where we had 56 cooks in the kitchen and we went through 150 in a year. Yeah. And that's just a showcase of how incredibly unhealthy it was. But here, we'll have someone leave maybe every other month, but it's because they're going to go open up their own business. So our first chef de cuisine, Eileen Hesse, she opened up Cold Hearted Gelato. Absolutely fantastic spot. She had that up. We had a cook that left to go up to Chicago to work in a Michelin star restaurant because that was his dream. We've had so many people that have moved to their next goal, and we've had very, very few people here that have, I think we've only had one person quit because it was just, it was too physically exhausting because at the end of the day, we still work like a full day, but, um, but thankfully, you know, that hasn't been the case. Right. And it, it's very reaffirming. So kind of what I tell other chefs is that you have to make your environment more friendly to people who could very easily just do what hundreds of thousands of hospitality workers did during the pandemic, which is go from making $11 an hour and getting yelled at all day to getting paid $30 an hour and just have to move a box from one conveyor belt to another conveyor belt and not get yelled at. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a hard industry already. Don't make it harder by not paying them enough and make it harder by not treating them correctly. Be willing to let your cost of goods sold increase on the labor side and figure out something to do with the other aspects of your restaurant, finding a way to decrease food costs, finding a way to, to, um, for example, we don't have a marketing budget that normal 5% of sales for most restaurants that goes towards our employee benefits package. So just re changing and evolving the way that you financially operate your business to make sure that your number one priority, the people who actually show up every single day and make your money are being properly treated in that. Right. So you opened in the midst of the pandemic 
and you just recently had a relocation. So what kind of lessons did you learn from all of that? Well, first lesson is uh, I found out that I'm crazy. Because <laughs> so we signed the lease, built the restaurant, opened up our first restaurant and closed it all during the pandemic. And that was stupid. <laughs> um, but no, it was no, we learned a lot. Um, we we were able to open up Counter 1.0 on a shoestring budget. You know, it only cost us twenty five twenty five thousand dollars to get it open. Um, but Counter 2.0 that we moved to uh, mid-December of last year. Uh, that was a good bit more expensive, about 80 times more expensive. But uh, what we learned, I think what we learned more than anything else is that we need each other. And that's not just like within the restaurant, but people need interaction with other people. And a lot of people, unfortunately, during the pandemic forgot how to human. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also, I think it, it heightened the you know, some of the negative aspects of, of some people specifically in American culture. And, um, I think what we've learned the most is that we have to be that for, you know, for reference, like we've got to be that lamp on the stand. We have to be that person that kind of showcases that putting positive and putting happiness into the world can do something. You know, one of my biggest, things I believe in is that activism works. You know, this restaurant is a very activist restaurant. There are things that we stand on and things that we believe in that we are very outspoken about. And it does make change. The average job posting now for a line cook in Charlotte is 75% higher than what it was two years ago. You know, the amount of people that you see offering benefits now to restaurants is incredibly high, you know, and that's something that we take a lot of pride in that we know that we were a part of that change. And even other small things like, you know, Pablo Picasso had this uh, big expo at uh, the Mint Museum past couple months, and we were very outspoken and, and were activists against it, showcasing, you know, the Francois Gelo story. And thankfully from that, the Mint Museum acknowledged it and is telling her story as well. But also we're working with another gallery here in Charlotte to bring in Francois Gelo's artwork so we can do a gallery in her honor too. And, you know, not that many people in Charlotte would have known about her if it wasn't for our act um our activism. So, you know, you're talking a lot about Charlotte and you know, you're you're both a cheerleader and a critic of of your of your place. But you know, what makes it a great dining destination? So the ultimate thing that makes Charlotte a great dining destination is our farming culture, hands down. North Carolina has the fifth most coastline in the country. We have the tallest mountain in the eastern seaboard. We have 30 different unique soil types throughout the topography of North Carolina. We have some things that are native and indigenous to here that are not native and indigenous to anywhere else in the world. I mean... You talk about Italian food, you immediately think of tomatoes. They didn't have tomatoes until first contact with some of the indigenous nations that find what we call Carolina now home. So you have this beautiful bounty of produce and proteins and the diversity of it that is just unmatched outside of places like California, right? But if you realize that you have a similar diversity and breadth of produce 
that a place like California, which is much more massive than North Carolina, but you can have that here in North Carolina and receive all of those things in just a three hour drive. That's a cheat code for a restaurant. And a lot of chefs now here in Charlotte are realizing that. So instead of having your normal franchise and corporatized steak and potatoes restaurants, you have places like not just Counter, but Leon Louise, Restaurant Constance, even some of your more like not traditional like farm table restaurants are utilizing local ingredients. So when I helped open up Angeline's, which is tech- technically a hotel restaurant, we were sourcing locally for a lot of our things because it just made sense. And when you have that foundation, it it really creates you know a food destination, which I specifically say food destination rather than a dining de- destination because we're definitely behind the times when it comes to dining and experiential um, dining specifically. And I think now the chefs, restaurateurs, GMs, sommeliers, we're now catching up. And we're realizing that we have this incredible foundation that we can take advantage of. And with now, you know, almost 2.3 million more people living in Charlotte than when I was born, you have so many people that moved in from outside that have an expectation and have a desire for fine dining that they now are you know, dealing out the cash to pay for those experiences and allowing chefs like myself to be able to create those experiences, but now having this bounty of produce behind them to really differentiate themselves on the scene too. Do you have any favorite stories that you've told through food at the counter? I think um, currently, because there's been there, there has been a lot. Um, I think currently, my favorite story that we're telling is a about a farmer. Her name is Mai, and I say Mai's farm, and people get confused because they're like, "How do you have spare time to open up your own <laughs> farm?" It's like, yeah, uh, but Mai is an incredibly amazing person, and she has both Southeast Asian and um, indigenous American um, heritage. So on both sides, she has incredible agricultural genes. And her farm is my absolute favorite. And we go from a dish that's in honor of Singapore um, that showcases laksa. So you have turmeric, ginger, lemongrass, uh, garlic. You have scallion, Thai bird's eye chilies, all these incredible ingredients. And then the next one is in honor of Shindu, which is in Sichuan, China, that we use a lot of red Sichuan peppercorn. We use a bunch of native uh, Chinese ingredients. And my favorite thing ever is to see the look on people's faces when we showcase the actual produce that we're using. And they realize that all of these ingredients for this recipe from Southeast Asia and all of the ingredients for this Chinese dish, they all came from the exact same farm in Taylorsville, North Carolina. And that's kind of that that light that light bulb moment, that switch where they're like, oh, this really is a different place. Because you can't find a farm like that really anywhere else in this country. Even in Southeast Asia, and we talk about this with that dish with laksa, no one really knows where that dish came from because some of the ingredients you can only find in Indonesia, some of the ingredients you can only find in Malaysia, some of the ingredients you can only find in Singapore. Some of them you can only find in Thailand. So there had to be that merge. There had to have been those conversations with farmers and chefs 
to create that dish. And we get to have all of those ingredients here in one place. Like that's, that's crazy to me. And so it's a really cool story to tell. Perfect. Great. Thank you so much. 